0: I spent a lot of time in the United States at the end of 2018 and into early 2019 gathering the interviews we're bringing to you on this series of The Next Billion Seconds. I was struck, I was saddened by how polarized the nation had become, how willing everyone is to fight with one another, to wage war with words, how everyone is deeply in love with being right beyond all reason. It feels as though it's a nation under siege. Not obviously. There are no bombs falling. But at the same time, it feels like the nation's wounds are wide open and there's always someone at hand to pour salt into them. Now, some of that has to do with the fragmentary and atomized nature of politics in the United States. That's a topic we covered in detail in our interview with Mika Sifri. But some more of it more than we care to acknowledge, is to do with the actions of state powers using technology to wage war on a very different battleground than any we'd ever known. We're touring that battleground with John Robb, a leading strategic thinker. He'll show us what wars now look like on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Von Clausewitz famously noted that war is the continuation of politics by other means. Just as our practice of politics has evolved over the 10,000 years of civilization, so have our capacities in war. And war has evolved from highly formal set pieces in the early modern period to the carnage of the American Civil War and the First World War to the total war of the Second World War into the little wars, the guerrilla conflicts that sprung up everywhere in the second half of the 20th century. And at the same time, The battlefield and the battle for hearts and minds, that's also changed. Something that once was fought over there once is now fought pervasively, often invisibly, everywhere. And we can even begin to suspect that we're in the middle of a weird sort of third world war that's being fought with disinformation and weaponized via social networks and at global scale. But we're not sure. Is is that just our paranoia talking? Or is it the fog of war? And fortunately, there's someone we can ask. John Robb understands the modern nature of conflict better than most through his Global Guerrillas blog. He's detailed the way power works when politics fail and what that means for how we should be thinking about and looking forward to our defense. So there's few better to talk to about the future of war. John, welcome to The Next Billion Seconds. Oh, thank you, Mark. All right. All right. Take us through maybe the last billion seconds. How has the nature of war changed over the last 30, 40 years? What have
1: we seen? Well, we saw a transition from you know, large-scale conventional warfare, like we saw in World War II, uh, to something that looked more like guerrilla warfare. I mean, it was guerrilla warfare. Um, it was fought in a variety of lo- locations. Um, the reason we had that transition was something a lot of people don't mention when they talk about warfare much because it's kind of uninteresting to, uh, to a lot of people. It, it was nuclear weapons. Uh, nuclear weapons made you know, large-scale conventional conflict between the powers that had nuclear weapons impossible, um, unthinkable. And um, you know, for all the talk about America, America being a you know, cowboy, reckless, uh, we, were, we were remarkably constrained in our behavior in terms of you know how we uh, acted with with our uh, enemies during the Cold and, War, and
0: we, we've talked about this on the podcast about the nuclear sort of damocles that you have all of this power, but you're unable to use
1: it. Correct, correct, and um, that kept you know warfare down at the, in the you know at the margins at the, at the lower levels of, uh, of human society. And the good news is that we didn't have those you know large scale conventional wars anymore. The huge loss of life we saw in World War II wasn't going to be repeated unless we were truly screwed up. But you know, after the Cold War ended, uh, we started to economically and socially integrate, Mm -hmm. and uh, that made even the small guerrilla wars less possible, less uh, less viable. Um, We saw a reduction in the number of. Small wars.
0: So, why? What's the line there between the integration and the reduction in the small wars?
1: Uh, well, most of the, the the conflicts during the Cold War were, you know, supercharged by the superpowers right. by the, the the protagonists in, in that conflict. Um, they intervened. They sent weapons. They sent personnel, uh, material. They you know drove those conflicts. Mm-hmm. And those conflicts you know lasted longer, and you know with much greater damage. And then they would have otherwise. Um, in the you know post Cold War world, there really isn't that drive anymore. I mean, we see nations falling apart. I mean, we saw it in the Balkans and in, in Europe. You know, we saw it in Syria. We saw it. In, you know, we have seen it in Libya. Um, but those aren't being driven by you know major powers.
0: Right, they're being driven internally in- by internal, the internal conflicts.
1: Right, and they're ugly. Um, I mean, slight difference, maybe with Yemen. You know, with the Saudi intervention, uh, they're making it much worse than it would have been. Um, but for the most part, we've seen a reduction in violence, mm-hmm. you know, large-scale violence. So that has not... That hasn't lessened the need for social change, okay? And, and for political change. Um, you know, history, you know, didn't end with the end of, you know, large-scale conventional violence. Uh, and there's still a need to change things. You know, when things don't work, Anymore, uh, people still want to see uh, improvements, and when they don't get improvements, uh, they want to, you know, fight against that. Um, and that meant that uh, that has meant, and that's what we're seeing is that that warfare is shifting to information mm-hmm. and to, you know, online warfare. Mm-hmm. And we're experiencing that. Um, I wrote a report last summer about uh, Marshall McLuhan and warfare and his thinking on warfare, and he said in the late '60s. Uh, that you know, World War Three would be a guerrilla information war, where there is no dividing line between the military and civilians. Which means that basically all of us would be involved in this information war for the future. For you know, who determines you know how things progress and what gets done, and we seem to be in that right now.
0: Now, is that a function of? War, is that a function of technology? And the funny thing is, I guess it's very hard to separate wars from technology because wars are almost always using the most advanced technology that they can because it's an advantage. So is it that we were able to then use the enormously powerful informational machinery? I mean, McLuhan famously sort of passed away before the internet became a thing and so didn't really live to see it. Are we in that war because we have an internet? Are we, or are we in the internet because we have a war? I mean, th- th- this also goes back to the roots of the internet as being an
1: ARPA project. Yeah, there's a more than a few threads in that one. Um, I mean, there are wars where you know participants in the in an existing system jockey for power, mm-hmm. and that's been what we've seen um, for the last 400 years. You know, big nation states. Basically, the nation state you know, this massive bureaucracy that was able to mobilize the resources of a you know, large group of people, everything you know, economically, socially, uh, even physically, the bodies and put it, put them in uniform. Um, they basically killed all other forms of governance. I mean, they they you know, out organized and out fought them. Correct. In fact, it, the surprise that they did it so well caused the the big body counts in World War One. I. I mean, it just was far better at organizing. <laughs> mobilizing, and this a nation is the thing: you listen to the
0: people heading into the war. Some of them could see this, right? And then some of them were like, "Oh no, this is going to be the just like all the other wars. It'll be Correct. small set pieces, and we'll win the Battle of Sedan and we'll march in Paris, and it'll all be over."
1: Yeah, they, they were able to, you know, finance more with the development of modern global markets, and then organize more uh, using modern bureaucracy with all the tools of, of the, that technology provided. Um, there's a second type of war, and it happens when there's a you know a big change, a big change in in social structure. So, Russian Revolution, Iranian uh, not, Revolution, not true. Now, those were actually you know deposing um, uh, you know feudal systems yeah. and replacing them with modern systems, bureaucratic systems, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, nothing more bureaucratic than the, the Soviet system. And and uh, even you know Nazi Germany was very much the bureaucracy. Yeah. You know, and America was a little bit different that we used a market to select. A market-based mechanism elections to select the leadership of the bureaucracy, mm-hmm. which kind of served as a safety valve. Um, now, the big change was moving from well, the, the Treaty of Westphalia, the creation of the modern ma- nation-state, the, Re- the Reformation, where the Catholic Church, thing, you know, had this kind of stasis, you know, riding over Europe, and it broke mm-hmm. with the printing press. I mean, Martin Luther wasn't really. Uh, unique in criticizing the Catholic Church and uh, what, th- what was different is that when he put his 95 theses on the on, on the church door uh, somebody took that down and they made a hundred copies on a printing press and that went everywhere yeah. and then it went to a thousand and then pretty soon there were pamphlets you know they call it disinfo at the time, uh, fake news millions of these pamphlets and and flyers circulating all over Germany attacking the Catholic Church and the, and the Catholics are like we don't deserve this this is untrue you're it's very res- reckless of you because you're you know risking your very soul you know your soul's at risk here how, how come you're saying this kind of stuff anyway that's a great example of what McLuhan said that you know the medium is the message mm-hmm. uh, what he meant by that kind of cryptic statement was that uh, the technologies that we use are more important than how you know the specific technologies and, and the messages that are sent over those technologies it's how they transform us. Uh, how they transform they connect into our brains and our bodies like cars connect into our legs to make you know allow us to travel great distances uh, electronic media from radio on or, you know, telegraph on uh, connect into into our nervous system into our brains and and uh, social networking is changing the way we think way we process information way way we societally organize The printing press changed the way we organized four hundred years ago mm. and social networking is changing the way we Organizing now. Okay, all right. So we have this these transition points. About oh, five hundred years ago. Sorry.
0: Yeah, five hundred. Almost six for the printing press. Almost fourteen fifty five. So yeah, it's we're getting we're getting into almost the six hundred range. Although for the first fifty years, it was literally all sort of Bibles and religious texts. It's not till around fifteen hundred. Well,
1: until nineteen hundred in the UK, half of all printed material was still religious. Yeah. So it's like.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we're. Yeah, we're still, I guess, sort of in the in the penumbra of that idea of religious information being disseminated via printing press. Although in the case of the UK, that would have been not just Church of England, but it would have been a wide range of Protestant sects as well. Right, which is also interesting. Okay, so do we have anything specific that we can point to as a sort of watershed moment of the tipping point between these two, where you have the large bureaucratic centrally organized war machine, what we would think of as the U.S. during the Second World War sort of being the peak example of that, with the Pentagon controlling everything, into this new... More uh, well, well, give us some of the characteristics of this form, this newer form, this newer networked form of warfare.
1: It's very different, and it's it's uh, giving the traditional national security people fits. Mm. They don't really know how to process it. So, like what we've seen recently is a lot of reports have come in talking about um, you know Russia propaganda and mm-hmm. you know Russian fake news. The reality is is that they were just a small part. Of what was largely a, a domestic guerrilla information war, mm-hmm. uh, far far larger, far m- many more uh, videos and and memes. So we're and, talking uh, about things the twenty
0: sixteen presidential election. Yeah, the twenty sixteen.
1: Yep. Yeah. Um, and the Russians, uh, you know, just slotted into that. They became part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the characteristics of it um, is something I wrote about back in you know Brave New War, and and I've seen it develop. It, you know, went online and and really came into its own is this idea of an, you know, open source network. And we've seen a couple open source networks develop online. Uh, One is, you know, the the Trump insurgency. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way that worked is that um, nobody really was in charge. You know, Trump was really just a reflection of what the insurgency was coming up with. Uh, uh, An open source dynamic is that there's no barriers to entry. Uh, Lots of people can participate. Anyone can participate. Um, there's no set strategy or, or, you know, set of tactics that you have to use. Basically, you uh, innovate, and if it if the innovation works in practice, everyone else copies it. Um, it's shared, you know, across the network, and that yields really, really fast rates of innovation. We saw that in Iraq during the Iraqi war. There was not just one guerrilla group that we were fighting. Yeah. We were fighting 70,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that it, you know, whenever we wiped out one. There'd be another one or two that would take its place. It really wasn't something that we could fold up, um, and we couldn't appease it because each of these groups had their had different motivations for you know, fighting the Americans, fighting the existing government. Um, the same is true now with with the uh, you know Trump insurgency. There really wasn't you know one thing we could do, or you know the uh, the establishment could do to kind of diffuse it. Because, really... because, in fact, it was a
0: revolt against the establishment Correct. as the establishment, Correct. right? So there's nothing the establishment could do to appease it other than to, to go away, which the establishment isn't going to want to do. Yeah,
1: open source insurgencies uh, come together over, under what's called a plausible promise, um, just like in software. It's this a simple central goal,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a goal that everybody, or you know, at least a large group of people, can, can agree with uh, they might agree on all the specifics and they might uh, uh, have diametrically opposed group goals with with other people in the group, but they all come together under that that simple goal and, and in the case of trump 's insurgency, they were sending Trump kind of like a grenade into Washington to break up the uh, uh, the technocrats or the bureaucracy right you know, basically just blow it up yeah right um, because they've been telling you know the Republican establishment that they should change, but they kept on. Getting the same thing again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've seen the same thing on the Democratic side with with you know Occupy and, yeah, and, and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, and all they, of these. Yeah. yeah they they shut him down, and he it w- he will be continued to be shut down. So you know you have this open source dynamic. You have this you know huge group of of, of you know, individuals all contributing to the information war
0: and all watching one another to see what's working as soon as they see something that works they copy
1: it and trump was a natural at it what he did is he since he was a cipher he didn't really have any specific um no he's been a democrat as much as he's been anything else right so he but he knew that if he could pick up on the on the things that resonated with 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 the audience what resonated with the insurgency uh then you know he could gain traction with it and um you know whenever he went out and did his stump speeches, what he did is he tried these things out. He tried these different memes out in public and and when he got a great reaction from the from the people there, he knew he had a winner, and that's the thing he he focused in on. and he did it again and again and
0: again. This open source insurgency is a conversation also between the candidate and the quote unquote campaign behind it, which is very diffuse and right and not not organized in
1: that sense. right. Um, there is a another type of open source network that developed. Um, in opposition to Trump. It's the resistance. Mm. And that one is pretty different. I mean, it came mostly out of, I, you know, I think it came more out of the uh, identity side mm-hmm. um, because every other method of stopping or uh, creating an opposition to Trump pretty much failed. It folded. You know, all the establishment arguments uh, failed because the establishment, the it couldn't organize people yeah it, it lost a lot of legitimacy i mean it really its uh, you know after world war II, i mean there was a sense that uh, you know we've built this technocracy this this really scientifically led management structure that could do th- wondrous things could could mobilize resources and and undertake huge projects and and could get things more right than wrong mhm Right, and uh, you know multilateralism too. But then we we went on with this uh, technocracy for quite a long time. But in the post Cold War environment, in the globalized environment, in the internet enabled environment, the world is too complex for this technocracy to function correctly. Uh, it keeps on getting things wrong, and if you know by the time it is even partway through a, a rollout of a plan, it you know it blows up in their face, um, and things go in in, in wild directions. Um, and also, it's gotten so. In that sense, and
0: from the point of view of democracy, yeah. the world's become unmanageable.
1: Right. I mean, we saw that with like, and it's the Iraq War, mm. and then we ended up, you know, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and five trillion dollars later mm. with two cesspools, which bled into Syria, and you know, the, the core group that started the ISIS were what came out of Iraq, um, and Libya is a mess, uh, and then we had the financial crisis. Obviously, where all the experts in the room. Um, they thought it would self-regulate. They thought it would, was impossible. Uh, they had, you didn't have a clue, and they sank the economy. They, they were still recovering. I mean, France is, is in. It, Having riots today because of that, because of the leftovers, the detritus from from that. From that uh,
0: okay, so we have this, event. I guess, massive invalidation of the existing the, bureaucratic, right. management, technocratic structures, Correct. and so now we see this this what, you, what you a self organizing insurgency, insurgency, yep. insurgency, or two of them, because you have the the Trump insurgency, but then you also have the resistance. The resistance is
1: is very very different, though. It it actually is constructive in a, in. In a positive way, it, it, I mean, it could be something that would be very, very useful long term. Um, what it does is, is it establishes kind of a moral framework for a an amorphous society, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, you know, a very individualistic, you know, fragmented society, and it and they kind of solves the problem of multiculturalism or you know, what we're seeing right now is that it bec- it's building itself on a very, very strict set of uh, identity rules or, you know, this idea of the patriarchy and that everyone's in a, you know, some level of oppression, right? And that, you know, core assumption has yielded some pretty aggressive puritanical behavior Mm -hmm. where they take a video of somebody and they just excoriate them, destroy them. Mm -hmm. And there's no context for it. It doesn't even if it's proven wrong later or, you know, taken badly out of context, it doesn't really matter because people are saying, well, that's, it's proving a point, a larger point that this occurs. Um, that's kind of the worst of puritanical behavior that it can get out of hand and it can be, you know, very debilitating. The potential here, though, is, you know, beyond, you know, Me Too and the anti-gun stuff and, and all the other things that are being latched into with this moral movement is that we have the potential of building kind of an online Moral system, a consensus system that that kind of limits excesses in a, in a very fragmented society, is that don't do this
0: becomes a framework for self-regulation.
1: Correct. I yeah. mean, how do you how do you build a global society um, that uh, you know, where you have all these different cultures and all these different viewpoints and all these different religions and it, you know that, that can work together can can work within a peaceful framework.
0: John, we're seeing now uh, the information that's coming out, and by the time this airs, it will, I think we'll have a, a better understanding of how disinformation has been slotted into the various networks that are operating at scale, both in England and in America and probably in other countries around the world, to be able to drive if not particular agendas, certainly at least a, a degree of chaos around them to, to increase the fog for people make, trying to make decisions in a very rich environment, to make it as hard as possible. Would you say that it, it's fair, given what we're seeing now, to say that we are, in some respects, in a wartime environment as wars look in the 21st century?
1: Well, it's um, this online component look, will look very similar. Um, and that there will probably be elements of violence slotted in, but that violence, that physical violence, will be in support of the online effort. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not going to be vice versa. The online effort isn't going to be supporting the the physical violence. It's going to be reversed, which is a big change. And and it 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 has to do with the fact that the the, the victory is actually won online. Right. it wins the elections. So it really is hearts and minds. We're yeah. Full circle on that. Correct. Um, and, you know, there's, um, the report I'm working on now is a, like the new political spectrum, which is, you know, a different thing than what we've had in the past. You know, the left and the right of the old, you know, world is uh, mostly about, do you go with a high, highly bureaucratized government, you know, that handles um, all social services, or do you go with the free market and, Individuals and and minimize the bureaucracy, and that's been pretty much a struggle for quite a long time. The new one is is really interesting. it's this idea of Perhadn had this idea of the new sphere or no sphere mm-hmm. right okay that we' the become, layer of thought that surrounds the world right and that the the social network and what goes beyond that will make that possible that we're headed towards a, like an like integration point um, that we're you know integrating our minds into mm-hmm. a you know a common mind. And the problem with that, of course, is that a lot of people are barking mad, correct, but you know that transition process hmm. uh, moving from this highly individualistic kind of uh, literary world where you know we read and you know as individuals towards thinking as a collective mm-hmm. is traumatic, and we're seeing that in you know the way people think nowadays i mean you know when you see a lot of people online. Um, they're pattern matchers, hmm. I mean, extreme pattern matchers. Not just the you know the pattern matching we've seen in the past. Uh, they spend all of their time just scanning news, looking for things that match the patterns that they support. Yeah, it's a confirmation bias, right? But yeah, to the but extreme. They, they're getting they're getting um, a sense of you know, tribalism and yeah. belonging from that pattern matching.
0: Well, and we also now have the artificial intelligence systems such as Facebook, which are designed to amplify exactly that kind of pattern matching.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, if you get down to the nuts and bolts of Facebook and most of the big corporates is what they really represent as the big social AIs. Mm. I mean, everyone, I think uh, most of the people working in, on AI are focused on the wrong thing. They're think, focused on trying to recreate a human being or, you know, some semblance of a human being in an AI. That's like, you know, trying to recreate a finger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's an appendage of, of what's really important is this, this social organism. Um, that's the thing that's really been evolving over the last, you know, ten thousand years, mm. far faster than we have as as biological beings. Um, Facebook and Google and others are working on social AIs, right. okay. And these social AIs are the embodiment, kind of the uh, a social artifact of sorts that that's managing, you know, how we uh, express our ourselves and how we achieve goals, increasingly by the day. And uh, you know, right now we've we've let these like Poorly run companies, mm. you know, uh, have complete control of their development. But over time, uh, you know, it's going to be pretty apparent that the social AI's—I mean, you know—social AI's on Facebook are. It's the AI that everyone touches every day, right? right? Uh, you don't touch AI's otherwise, for the most part. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, I saw you I comparison.
0: Think you have an Alexa in, in your home, but in comparison a to Facebook, and-
1: though. Yeah, you know, and, and in terms of the number of times you interact with it, or into, in Google, hmm. and, and um, yeah, there's like yeah, Amazon's one of the big players too. But it's like these these big ones are far more present than than what we commonly think about when we think about AI. Mm-hmm. We think about this kind of like human like thing. Hmm. The scary part is that the totalitarianism of the you know I'm writing this report is going to be about the long night, the potential that these social changes, the changes in warfare, and um, the changes in technology, particularly the, the rise of social AIs, mm. could create the, the worst totalitarian, worst, worst tyrannies in the history of mankind. Um, you know, these networked, social AI-enabled tyrannies, where there's not a concentration camps, it's open air prisons. Mm. That if you violate one little rule or you don't bend the way the society is trying to bend you you can't do anything right you and can't get a job you can't get married this you can the anything.
0: social credit system in china is 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 the prototype in is an exploration phase for that though the interesting thing about the social credit system is it does have this other aspect which which only dawned on me recently as i was as it was explained to me which is that it allows people who don't have access to the banking system to actually be able to have a credit rating associated with them so they can use banking type services and this is analogous to systems i have Helped define for the developing world so right. that people who don't have access to the banking system can qualify for lines of credit, which are too expensive for the bank to qualify them for.
1: But only if you're politically loyal. As long as you don't criticize the, the, and anyone is, for corruption. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. And this is this is the difference I think between the social credit system in China and the systems that I've seen rolled out, say in East Africa, is that there's a clearly they've linked a political dimension to it. That's
1: it's also puritanical because it, Confucianism is is very moralistic. And it's still an, it's, it's the core element within the communist system in China. I mean, the political leaders all have to take the same standard tests that Confucian leaders you know, laid out years and years ago. Um, and there's a very specific society that it wants to gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. So
0: is that model inevitably going to be copied by other countries around the well, world.
1: Okay, so China's making the argument that um, with social networking, with globalization, that the world is too complex and uh, that it will fall into chaos too easily um, if you don't manage it manage it correctly. And that they're making the case to a lot of countries that if you actively manage it, you manage your population, you control them in using networks, networked means, uh, you can avoid this chaos. And you can see the argument from the establishment in the US this, in the same way. Mm-hmm. All of this Russian stuff, It, you know, from my perspective as somebody who's been in this forever, looking at this stuff, um, the Russians were just a tiny piece. That they didn't even come up with their own material. Their own material, if you've ever read Russian propaganda, was crap. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, they've been amplifying and reflecting. Yeah, they just pick up on stuff that other people. They slotted into the open source insurgency with Trump, and they were a small piece. Even a thousand videos they were talking about on YouTube. YouTube, five billion videos were watched every day. It's like they don't even understand internet scale when they make these arguments. But the establishment is making the argument that they need more control over the messaging. Hmm. They need. Uh, veto power over over. They have to define what is truth and what isn't truth. And for the most part, when I see people talk about disinformation, uh, they're not talking about there's extremes where they're, they're, it's factually incorrect. They're talking about how the facts are interpreted, right? And presented and presented, and that's in you know dif- disinfo by presentation. Or we, there was like this whole thing of a mode of conjugation. Mm. You know the the Russell conjugation, Bertrand Russell's thing, whereas that, uh, you know, when you read the New York Times, you're you're not reading it for the facts, you're reading it for how it conjugates the news, how it tells you how, you know, uh, an elite, urban, very sophisticated thinker in New York would interpret the facts. And a mode of conjugation is that you can change the words around the fact, around the person, and um, you can totally change how it means or what it means. So, for instance, uh, you know, if I stick to my position, I'm um, steadfast, steadfast, right? Rather than stubborn. Yeah, and rather than obstinate, which yeah. would be the worst, right? Yeah. So, it, it really depends on how you, how right. you frame it. So, this well. also
0: this Lakoff's framing as well. It's right. falls into all of this. All right, so we're, we've got some nuance. We've got some subtlety in these techniques. We see these techniques being used both internally against, popul- against or f- to manage populations internally. And to some degree, with whatever level of success, we can't really measure being used by external agents to help sway political battles in other countries. Do we see these technologies evolving? Are we learning? Is this part of the whole open source learning process so that what the Chinese learn works in China gets taken up by some little guerrilla group
1: somewhere else in the world? Well, China's exporting it. They, the first example of an export I saw that they were doing something in Venezuela, they had a what they called the I think the Fatherland card, mm-hmm. so they can start tracking you know, where Venezuelans go and how they do things, and they're bringing the systems in to do that. So it, as they build out their belt and road, we're going to see them bring it to Africa and a lot of places. So you'll see these network There's tyrannies in Central today. Asia
0: as well. everywhere oh, yeah. the belt and road. Yeah, goes. the
1: network yeah. tyrannies will start to connect up.
0: Right. So the Belt and Road then has this aspect that it's not just a physical transport medium, but it's then also an ideological uh, or transport medium for governance systems well. There's a, well, there's a
1: larger framing, framing here that's interesting. Is that, um, and it's also a reason why social AIs are, are the most interesting AIs. Is that to build an AI, you need lots and lots of data. Mm. And you get the most amount of data most amount of interesting data from these big social networks, yeah. from you know where lots of human beings are interacting with it, and so China right now is just is pretty much just limited to what they have with their billion. Okay, Facebook, you know, has what two, uh, three, and, yeah, two and a half billion active users, three and a half are total, you know, active inactive, but they're basically trying to get everybody else, mm-hmm. and they have a much bigger body of data to build. Their AI and there's a very strong correlation is between the amount of data and the quality of the AI. And if you are thinking about the future of economics, you're thinking about the future of products and services, is that almost every product and service in the next 20 to 30 years will have an AI component, right? And that AI component is only as good as the data that it's used to train on, right? So if you're trying to sell to the rest of the world, you know, se- sell your products around the world, you need all this... Data about how they view the the world um, in order to build AIs that appeal to them, build AI-enabled products that appeal to them. So China's now, how does it get out of its trap, where they only represent Chinese products, and, and Chinese products that are geared to Chinese tastes and interests and mindsets will have limited appeal outside of China?
0: So what we're saying is then it's more likely that Google or Facebook could build these kinds of tools for management at scale. This ties in when I wrote The Last Days of Reality. I One of my closing quotes was from you talking about, you know, people will want to regulate Facebook for the power they have, but we need to view that very suspiciously because right. that's not the kind of power that you necessarily want to have handed over to a regulator.
1: Well, they asked, remember that they asked Hillary Clinton, you know, what, company would she like to be CEO of and within a fraction of a second she said Facebook <laughs> and she knows that because if you can control Facebook you can control
0: he who controls the Facebook controls well, yes
1: yeah but you, you, think about it in terms of politics and political suasion and mm. in your ability to actually uh, determine how the world works in countries that are uh, like Southeast Asia where people get the majority of the news and all of the local news outlets have been crushed because yeah. of Facebook and yeah. um,
0: it Certainly is the sole source
1: and, uh, in Malaysia. Yeah, it's where the... where you get all your information, yeah. right? Um, your ability to actually shape how things work globally—if you ran Facebook—is is pretty intense, uh, far more than what you would get from you know managing so the U.S. Is it,
0: is it then a matter of I guess we think of it as vital national interest in, in this in the military sense about who runs Facebook? I mean, right now it's Mark and. Zuckerberg's term at running Facebook seems like it's winding down. It seems like the number of contradictions around what he's done is is catching I, up to him.
1: I think it's more of a um, a rift between Facebook and the U.S. And, f- and the U.S. is representing a smaller and smaller percentage of Facebook's value. Right. Right. Um, when people start talking about you know, Facebook winding down a little in the U.S. And, and it's not, you know, not maybe lost a million customers or something. It's gaining 500,000 new customers a day, globally, mm-hmm. a day. Um, and all of the new value that's going to be created is going to be done out there. Uh, it's not really beholden to us. It's not really even a US company anymore. Same thing with Google. I mean, it, Google started to make, divide, you know, kind of separate itself from the US. It doesn't work with US military. Started to uh, initiatives with the the Chinese and they have an AI center they're building in Beijing, which is still on track. They're even talking about you know, modifying their search engine to, to be censorship friendly, Although which they've is just, that, they've just flipped on that. that. that back, but right. I don't think that's going to be gone for long. They'll no. reverse it again, and just because they don't view the U.S. as a, an ally mm. anymore,
0: or, or but then how can the U.S. move forward in a world where these incredibly potent technologies of control are?
1: we're losing control our
0: rogue, rogue in the right. sense that they don't necessarily exist to promote american interests correct well
1: th- that's the problem <laughs> is that the uh, they're too big to control mm-hmm. if the us can control them
0: mm-hmm. right so then are we seeing the birth of the first truly supranational entities that have just power in their own right without being a nation state as we would have known it for the last ten years. Well China's doing that
1: internally so their government is morphing into an online presence Mm -hmm. right? They're morphing into a network I mean they have the bureaucracy and everything but they've pasted on this new network thing that they're running they're actively controlling Um, and they want to export that and then build a much larger network and um, our interests are to be defended by a Facebook and a Google, whose whose interest is mostly on profitability and really um, not representing anything on the political side that that's beneficial to us. I uh, don't even I don't even know if the U.S. even if it uh, was run by the the, the most far seeing technocrats in the world could actually could run it effectively because it's just <laughs> without actually you know taking control of it like China and running in the same way. Um, yeah, it's a, it, it, we're in a we're in a tough situation. It's it's you know very very similar to the you know the Reformation and the breakup of the Catholic Church is you have this incredible fragmentation and and you have the end of feudalism coming because of the rise of bureaucracy made possible by printing press and and you see the church and its order being fragmented. You see you know incredible fights and you know information warfare and that spilled into the physical warfare. Um, and that roiled for quite a long time. And it's not apparent who actually is the, who's the good guys. Because right now it seems like, okay, the people who are like purely anti-Trump are the good, good guys. But a lot of them are, you know, the establishment types. Or they're, you know, in the or resistance new, type. There's
0: new, new Puritans that you're also new talking new Puritans
1: about. that are, you know, that are turning up everywhere. Um, but the insurgency looks very similar to the Protestants. And in the, in, in, they're chaotic, they're nutty. Um, but and they're they very individualistic, yeah. correct? Yeah, um, that they're trying to s- slow down the this integration process and you know force it to you know take its time in, in, in integrating and you know establishing what is the final form. And I don't know if that's a bad thing. I mean, granted, it looks awful. It truly does look awful, and it's a it's a truly painful process. And um, I don't see it as a you know as a fascist threat per se. It's just too chaotic for that. Um, There's not the bureaucracy element that, you know, you can see it a little bit on the edges, but frankly, it's not the same thing as the 20th century.
0: So does that then mean that a big project like the Social Credit Project or whatever it, it, it spawns is inevitably going to be whittled away because there's a trend that it's fighting against that it simply cannot resist? you know that it's trying to be centralized and bureaucratic and at the same time be networked well
1: by finalizing on what they think is right now what they will end up doing is minimizing or eliminating their ability to adapt to the complex environment that we exist in so if you look at it from perspective of the 20th century we had a bunch of different systems basically the big soviet system versus the american system the american system was more chaotic but it was more adaptive. Mm. The Soviet system froze everything in place, and it just wasn't able to adapt to and take advantage and, and and find the innovations and capitalize on the innovations. Things that weren't visible to the planners didn't exist as far as they're concerned. So um, you wouldn't see like personal computers come out, because they would say, why would anyone want a personal computer? And we saw that in the U.S., but people routed around them and and, and came up with this, and now we're light-years ahead. That kind of uh, situation could occur in China, where it's just, it sees, it's historically very similar to what happened in China qu- quite a few times. Is Social stability is far more important than, than progress, and that it will freeze this moment in history and not progress. John, it's amazing
0: how we've actually managed to go from politics into war and now full circle back into politics. Thank you so much for being on The Next Billion Seconds. Oh, my pleasure. An argument can be made that the Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election constituted an act of war. It certainly achieved the aims of a conventional war, driving an opponent into confusion and weakness. We know how it happened. We know why it happened. We don't know how to keep it from happening again. It's said that every army is always prepared to fight the last war. But this war, in John Robb's words, this brave new war, it looks nothing like those conflicts. And the lines between politics, political interference, and warfare, those lines have become so blurred as to be effectively invisible. Where you think you are on this new battlefield of politics and warfare speaks more about you than about the realities of this war. John Robb had more to say about our current geopolitical moment off microphone, and I hope that next year we'll come back to him and get him to repeat what he said after we stopped recording. It was all fairly mind blowing. And a sure sign that von Clausewitz has been reading Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> Has our conversation gotten you to thinking about the future of war? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn, tell us what you want to know about the future, and we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In our next episode, we'll bring you another in our new series about the future of transport, The Next Billion Cars. Performance often gets sacrificed to the gods of efficiency. But is the electric vehicle bringing performance back into play? Can we enjoy the rush of acceleration without feeling guilty? That's next time on The Next Billion Cars. On the episode after that, we'll have another installment of our Cryptonomics series, taking a look at some recent developments in cryptocurrency and blockchain and what they tell us about our financial future. Then, after that... We'll drop another episode of The Next Billion Cars. We've got great shows coming every week. You'll want to be here to listen. Big thanks to John Robb for coming on our show and to my dear friend Dan Lynch for providing support. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.